This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse Publications. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today on iUniverse, we'll be discussing a book titled Leaving Liberty, Essays on Politics and Free Market Thinking. The author, Martin Mazzora. Welcome, Marty. Welcome. Hi there. Good to, vi- <laughs> good to visit with you. Yes, uh, you're, you're welcome Thank yourself. You. That's good. Yeah, exactly. How'd you come to write this book? What's your background? Tell me a little bit about your history. Jay, I am an uh, investment consultant. I've been one for 29 years. And uh, obviously, in that business, I, I spend a, a noticeable amount of time uh, paying attention to the economy, economic events globally. I have to consider what, what impacts of, of certain events and trends might have on the equity and fixed income markets. And uh, therefore, I, I've become quite the student of uh, global economics and economic history. And over the years, as my understanding uh, has evolved, I've become quite concerned with the impact that the political process has on the on the economy and on the financial markets. And I started writing about that a few years ago. And uh, I blog daily um, and on articles that have to do with financial markets, but probably uh, a third to a half of those are, are specifically about politics and economics, and hence the uh, the book you hold in your hand um, was was the result of me wanting to um, distill some some concepts, some ideas that I that I that I would like everyday people to begin thinking about and hopefully understanding in a, in a very inviting, uh, very accessible format. And, and uh, as, you, as you notice there, it's a daily devotional. And, and again, it's, it's something I want uh, people who would normally not perhaps uh, be attracted to a book about politics and economics to pick up, enjoy, and read, and hopefully get something out of. Well, you've quoted James Buchanan, who is an economist, and he said mm-hmm. this, when I look at the future, I get nervous, but when I look to the past... I feel pretty good. Uh, that appears to be your philosophy as well. I think so. Yeah, I, in the book, I, I start optimistically and I finish optimistically. And, and in between, um, you know, I complain a lot about um, the, again, politics and economics. And, and you know, I hope that, that, that through this sort of um, style of, of explaining what, what really what I believe is going on under the surface Will will create some some um, transparency for people and, and be an understanding that, that that as the media tends to present things isn't necessarily what's what's really transpiring under the surface and the consequences that you might expect sometime are, are exactly the opposite of what history has proven to us time and again. But when you look back um, and you think about the events of the past, that that article or that essay that you're referencing. 
I, I talk about the good old days, and of course I, I, I say the Great Depression and World War II and Korea and and assassinations of presidents and that sort of thing. And and we, we get so nostalgic, but when we look back, there uh, I don't know that there was a time when we weren't frightened about something. So you look to the future, you get nervous. You see the European debt crisis. You see, uh, you know, the, you feel the effect of the tech bubble a few years ago, and then the real estate bubble, and, and deep recessions, deeper than we're used to, you know, the past few decades. And you think, wow, uh, it's getting pretty scary. Then you look back, and you think, yeah, we've actually come a long way in the right direction. Yeah, we've also had that same challenge in the past and survived. Yes. Do you have any personal insight or reflections that might give us a better handle on what's happening with the economy in our country? Um, great question. Um, you almost have to look at it from, from a couple of angles. If you look at it from a geopolitical standpoint, um, I want to say it's improved relative to where we were, say, two or three years ago. What, what comes to mind is the European debt crisis. I don't know that 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 I that, that would be correct. It certainly seems on the surface that we have backed off of the edge of the cliff, if you will. Um, my concern, though, is that the is the policy, the prescriptions, and the, the things that may have pulled us back. It, it, it appears, in my view, that it's really been more about central banks. And, and the various facilities that, that, that have been spawned by central banks and the IMF, et cetera, providing the liquidity to essentially tell people, listen, we won't let big systemic institutions fail. My view, Jay, is that that, that is a long-term terrible mistake. Um, I understand the short-term pain of a big bank or a, or a big auto, U.S. automobile company or, or something going out of business. I also understand the, the concept of creative destruction and how recessions and loss and failures are, are so key to to the process. Milton Friedman said we are a profit and loss. So we, we, we operate in a profit and loss world or system. Loss is every bit as important as profit. I would say these days, the, the lessons of loss uh, are even more important, and my concern ultimately is that I, I don't know, and, and, I, and I stress this in my book in several places, I don't know that we have properly felt the consequences of our actions the past few years or decades that have, that have really come to a head. So, so anyway, on the surface, if you look at the financial markets, you look at bond yields and so forth, you say, okay, we're not, we're not in that, that, that you know, red, alert danger zone that we were a couple of years ago. I don't know that what we've done doesn't ultimately put us back there again in the not-too-distant future, and maybe even worse, sooner or later, we're going to have to come to terms with the reality that even countries cannot spend beyond their means ad infinitum and rack up debt and not ultimately suffer the kinds of consequences that you and your family would suffer if you acted the same way. The fact that the country has a printing press, or the U.S. does anyway, delays that pain. And we do have a very dynamic, robust economy, ultimately. I should say dynamic, not robust at this point, which, which does make the dollar yet a very valuable commodity. You look at the, the entitlement structure that we've built. You look at that growing government. The bigger government grows, the more 
it extracts from the private sector, the less dynamic our economy will become. People spending other people's money on other people and their own projects and, and, and you know, forwarding their own political ambitions is not an efficient allocation of our resources. And so, I, again, I, I, short term, I, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with where we are. Long term, I think we're going to have to get a handle on things. Uh, if we don't, we will ultimately it'll come with a great deal more pain than we would have otherwise had to feel. Well, most logical people, I think, would agree with you. I've noted that you also are doing a blog on the Internet. Is this book an extension of that effort? Jay, it is. The, the essays in the book actually are blog posts or articles that I've written in the past. And there's literally hundreds and hundreds of them on my blog site. And what I, what I, what I did is took just 31. It's, a, it's designed to just pick it up, read it for a month. I'll do a series of these. And uh, ones that, that got the people from the feed, I, I, I learned from the feedback. Um, they found them sometimes more entertaining than pertinent, but, but these were pertinent and entertaining uh, based on the feedback that I got from, from my subscribers. And um, so I thought I would just I would do this. This is the second book I've written. Actually, I wrote one in 2007, but that was more about the financial markets. And uh, so, so my idea is actually to do a series of these. I was actually starting on a bigger project, and it, it occurred to me one day. In fact, I walked into one of my staff's office, and she was uh, opening a small Amazon.com package, which I, I received those frequently. But this one she was opening, and when I walked in, she said she apologized for opening it, which, of course, I didn't care. And her reason for opening it, and she was actually reading it, was that it was so small and so inviting, and it was actually a pamphlet from an economist, written by an economist. And um, and then, uh, ironically, that afternoon I was doing a little work on my on my big opus, and it occurred to me nobody's going to read this thing. Um, and I and I stopped, and I said I'm going to do it differently. And I thought about it for a while, and and I came up with this idea of. You know, the, the, in this case, a free market daily devotional. The next one may be on, you know, uh, free trade, or it, it'll, it'll be the same thing. But I, I could do these one a year for the next several years. Well, it's a great concept. Thirty-one days—that's something even I could uh, probably pay attention to and read. You can take in the whole thing in about forty-five, fifty minutes, and uh, so. And, and I mean, the feedback I got from readers—I've been getting from readers so far—pretty much is what we were after. So fabulous. And who does this yeah. book? Who does this book appeal to, and why do you think they are attracted to it? Well, um, I got a nice letter from a gentleman in, in Las Vegas recently who, who bought the book, and, and he, he basically said, I know very little about economics, but I understood everything you wrote, and it was so enlightening. He was very generous with his uh, with his comments on the uh, with his compliments on the book and what it, what I was exciting for me is he said exactly what I was trying to accomplish. So here's a guy who would never pick up a book on economics and something about this one, maybe his knowledge of me or what have you, inspired him to grab the book. I also got a, a nice review from a from a uh, econ professor at one of the major universities who I'd sent the book to. He and I have he's posted my blog a few times on his blog site. He's a very well known economist and he and, and it, it seemed to appeal to him. He said he loved the book quote. And so perhaps maybe there's a pretty broad audience. Um, it's not a technical read by any stretch. There's no math. Um, it's really just I mean there's such simple concepts where I equate. Uh, fiscal policy to 
someone who's overweight and at the doctor and getting uh, a pain. Two scenarios, one where the prescription is diet and exercise, and the other one where the prescription is a pill. And kind of and, and kind of take those little stories and, and look at the obvious consequences of going in one direction or the other. And I do that time and time again in the book. So, so Jay, then it, uh, obviously then it appeals to people who would, I, I'm repeating myself, but who would just not pick up a book like, you know, the general theory on employment, interest, and money or some, some very technical read. I, I've always complained that the, the books that I like to read um, in general are written by academics for academics. So, um I find myself rereading chapters until I finally get it, realizing that most people who aren't in the business that I'm in are, are going to read a page and say, wow, I, I'm, I'm going to go spend my time more productively elsewhere. And those are the very folks who I think would benefit from from understandable, you know, real-life economic concepts. Well, you're providing a wonderful service to folks like me who don't have the time or the energy to get into the the weeds on some of this some of this content that can be thrown at you. Now, you also are fascinated by Wall Street. What are you finding out there that you think is of interest and and value today? Well, it's my business, so I can't help but be very um, very uh, keen, at least in my own mind, on what's going on today. We have yeah, we have uh, the indices reaching all-time highs. We've had a, a bit of a pullback the last couple of weeks. And I, I, I constantly um, talk to my readers through my blog and, of course, with clients in person about the fact that the moving parts are infinite, um, uncountable in terms of what ultimately impacts the market and the economy. So I, I've learned over the years that there is no timing of these things. Um, the, the the consensus is that this monetary policy, this quantitative easing, what the Fed is doing on a monthly basis, uh, printing money and buying bonds from banks, essentially keeping interest rates low, is what's been fueling the market. Now, I said a few minutes ago that you really have to look at it from two angles. The other angle is actually the fundamentals of the financial markets, particularly the equity markets, which would be the global stock markets. One of, the, one of the interesting developments since the Great Recession of 2008, where countries, as, as I've alluded to, I think here, or certainly in the book, have been egregiously irresponsible, in my opinion. Now, not everybody agrees with me. Some Nobel Prize-winning economists would tell you I'm crazy. But what you and I know about finances in our daily lives, the big governments have broken all the rules. Companies, on the other hand, haven't. Companies, by and large, took that as a sign that they were bloated. They had too much going on. They had they had excess capacity. They had too many employees, so they laid off a lot of people, hence the high unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. They closed factories. They paid off debt, as has the consumer to, to some degree. And any debt that's left, they refinanced at these crazy low interest rates. So when you look at a, at a company's balance sheet, by and large, you see a, a picture that we, I don't know that we've ever seen in terms of cash, um, margins, profit margins, uh, earnings growth. Now, the earnings growth, some have, have been you know, very skeptical of it because it's come from cost-cutting. I like it. I, I, I look at more efficiencies when the, ultimately the economy does gain a little traction. Um, you got to like 
the the global markets now there's I could speak I could keep going and I know we'd run out of time Jay about what's currently going on in emerging markets and how all this quantitative easing created a bubble over there that's kind of being the air is being let out of as we speak mm -hmm. but in the long term scheme of things there's a lot of opportunity globally and I've been very excited about growth in the smaller developing nations in the years to come but I'm expecting a tremendous amount of volatility as that, as that growth develops now, in your book, what themes of your book do you think are relevant, uh, in addition to the fact of some very basic, to-the-point descriptives of what's happening in the economy, what themes do you think might be relevant? Well, um, I, I think, well, what comes to mind, Jay, is, is uh, throughout the book, but certainly toward the end, the last two um, essays, the second to last in particular, I titled Political Chicken. And if you want to call that a theme, I think I paint very clearly what I think anybody, virtually anybody reading that essay would have to agree with, regardless of their political bias and how much they may love a given politician. And that is, it is impossible, quite frankly, to be completely honest and objective and get elected to national office. Um, it, it, virtually impossible. Maybe I'd, I'd like to think it's possible, but but how would you have the the access without without you know, promising things to people in terms of the access to the public and so on? So I, so I talk about uh, the, the in, in briefly in, in, with brevity the raising money process and the the favors that are promised as a result and the uh, and and so the theme if there is one is that. Please, regardless of your affiliation, whether you're a conservative or a liberal or what have you, don't think for a minute that the side of the fence that you that you um, sympathize with is that much better, if at all, than the other side of the fence. They're all after the same thing. They're all after re-election. They're all after um, what you know their own personal ambitions, and they get to spend other people's money to to forward you know their their goals or to to achieve their goals, and and. Therefore, you have rampant cronyism. Um, you know, like for example, you know, the fuel standards comes to mind. I didn't write about that, but but um, people who blend or companies that blend fuel are, are mandated by government to help out corn farmers um, because they are now ramping up the required percentage of biofuels that go in there. That is clearly, and you can trace it back to the beginning. It's, it's an expensive proposition. It makes the cost of fuel go up. It takes a lot of fuel and pollution to create enough corn to make a gallon of ethanol. It makes no sense, but it does if you've been promised by the uh, by the, the corn farming industry, if you will, uh, a whole lot of support if you can get this done. So I could go on and on. So the theme of the book is be very, very skeptical with the political process, and hopefully if enough of us get it, we can begin pushing politicians in a better direction. They're always going to go the direction we push them, so we're going to have to take responsibility. I said in a blog post not long ago that deficit spending is terrible until some of it lands on your doorstep. Uh, it's easy to get covered, uh, captured by the, by the uh, political process, and when we do, it, it, you know, the government grows faster and things just get worse. And get enticed into expecting something for nothing. Exactly. Tell me your blog post. Uh, where is it located and what's the name? It's betweenthelines.us. Betweenthelines.us. Yeah. The book title is Leaving Liberty, Essays on Politics and Free Market Thinking. The author, Martin Mazzora. 
Thank you, Martin, for visiting with us today. One chapter a day will get you through the book in 31 days, 96 pages total. There you go. (laughs) Thank you, Martin, for visiting with us today. Great read, simple, to the point, and powerful in its content. I'm sure many of our listeners will want to obtain their own personal copy of Leaving Liberty. Where can they get a copy of this? Um, well, of course, the uh, the publisher would love to sell you one. That's iUniverse.com, but Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, any of the online booksellers, you can, you can grab it there. Thank you so much. For Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse Publications, this is Jay Douglas Parker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana, through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. And today we'll be visiting with author Tim McGee to discuss his book, Worthy McGuire. Welcome, Tim. How's your day so far? Uh, good, good. Tim, how would you classify this book? Describe that for our listeners. What type of book is this? It's a mainstream fiction novel. The cover of your book gives this brief description. Retired businessman Worthy McGuire knows he cannot put it off any longer. Time's not on the side of this gruff World War II veteran, racing to fulfill a promise he made in the horrors of the D-Day invasion. As he plans a pilgrimage from Michigan to the site of both his best and worst day. This certainly is a mysterious introduction to your book. Tell us more. It is a, um, it's really a story about a World War II vet who um, takes his estranged family on a journey across the globe uh, in search of a French family that 
um, really saved his life during World War II, and he made a promise to return, and it's taken him all these years to fulfill this promise. And this is the stories about that journey and how he he takes his estranged family with him and, and really has a chance, an unexpected chance, to uh, have some uh, closure and redemption with his family as he seeks out this French family that saved his life. Sounds like a fascinating backdrop. How did you come to write this book? What was your motivation? How did you get into the background and into the story to write it? Well, it actually, my father was a, um, a World War II vet, and so he was one of those, as Tom Brokaw coined it, greatest generation. And um, when he, um, he graduated high school, uh, he, joined, he joined the Army and right, right away, and it was, it was actually 1944. He never talked about the war much, and, and as many of that generation don't. But I was just always amazed that at such a young age, these, these men and women took on such responsibility. And so um, after he passed away, several years after he passed away, I, actually my grandmother had a stack of letters that my dad wrote during the war um, while he was, um, he was actually a drill sergeant and just almost on a weekly basis, he wrote to his parents kind of explaining what was going on, where he was. He was actually in Texas, and she gave me those letters just before she passed away, and I always, I always had them around, and I was on a trip to France last year and went to Normandy and just thought about that, and kind of the story germinated in my mind at that point. Um, always wanted to write something that would honor my father and the greatest generation. So that was really kind of the, the germination of the story. That's a fabulous motivation. Did you pull any of the stories from those letters and include them in the book? Actually, I didn't, but the the story hinges around this soldier, this worthy McGuire, who it, it, during the, he's involved in D-Day evasion. He, he, he lands on Omaha Beach and ends up at a, um, a tiny apple farm and spends a harrowing night with a French family, helps a, a very pregnant woman actually deliver her baby by candlelight. And the, uh, the story then kind of moves on to the next day where he uh, helps save, save the family and they save him, and he has to move on. He's, you know, he's a soldier. He's actually been wounded, and he's got to go get treatment. But he hates leaving this family. They just got caught up in the war just because of where they live. And he, he gives this baby his watch to play with, and he promises he'll return for it. And that's kind of the the crux of the story. And the actual watch is, I, that was actually, my dad had a watch <laughs> that he gave me that he got when he graduated from high school. So that was a, that was a key prop in the story. And that, so I actually had that watch that my father gave to me. And so I used that same watch, same style, same brand uh, in the book. And so that was uh, kind of a key motivator as well. Are there any messages besides the restoration of your key character, Worthy McGuire, that are important to this novel? Well, yeah, it, 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 it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, um, I guess a metaphorical journey from, for a, you know, a guy who he is, when the store starts, you know, Worthy McGuire's 89 and he's at the end of a very long life. And so, you know, one of the messages is that, that I'm trying to get across is not only is there, you know, there's opportunities for redemption and closure with even with a strange family. And I, everybody has, you know, everybody has a family has a story, right? Um, hmm. But um, it's also just a story about uh, it kind of the you know the greatest generation. These the older generation 
you know, they're not ready to be put out to pasture. They still are a kind of a vital component and can teach us a lot. And that's really one of the, what was one of the key themes of the story. This book that you've written, who do you think it would appeal to and why? Well, I think the, the, uh, the target audience is mainly, I would say, kind of baby boomers and up. Uh, it, it has, you know, but having said that, I've, I've, I've got several people who have, read, who have read it and, you know, they're kind of like the soccer moms. It really appeals to people who are dealing with, you know, dysfunctional family issues because this is a dysfunctional family. There's, there's, there's no question that Worthy's family is, um, you know, has some, some issues. And, and so these, these get played out in the, in the story and kind of how they face down their fears. So it, anybody who has that kind of family dynamic would be, it'd be appealed to. It also has a historical angle because in the middle of the book, there's a there's a flashback to um, you know June 1944 uh, and in Normandy so there's there's that aspect of it as well so it's mainstream fiction baby boomers and 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 up is really what I was look, with targeting because your novel has a historical setting did you do a lot of research into the history of World War II <laughs> I did I watched Pri- Saving Private Ryan 19 times now I um actually um when we went we went to uh, my wife is English, and so we go back to England quite a bit, and we decided to take a side trip to Normandy last summer. And so while there, uh, I did quite a bit of uh, research while there. Not only, like, we went to some museums and, and uh, the U.S. Cemetery at Omaha Beach and things like that, but also just kind of getting the feel for the land because the last third of the book, actually, all, it all takes place in Normandy. So um, in addition to that, I've... I've um, I did quite a bit of research in terms of not only reading, you know, firsthand accounts of the uh, of the landing at Omaha, um, but in addition, was able to actually track down the the, the Fighting Twenty Ninth was one of the one of the main infantry infantry divisions that was involved with Omaha, and I was able to track down through research their actual war reports, action reports, and read a lot of those just so I could get a you know obviously this is a fiction story, but I wanted to be as is as accurate as possible in terms of, you know, how they landed, what, what the soldiers faced as they were fighting their way off the beach and up the bluffs. How long did it take to write this book? And, and in the process, was there some self-discovery that might have been included? It actually took from, from start to finish to actually write the book. It, it took me about 10 months. So like, it's like giving birth to a baby. And in terms of self-discovery, I would say it was, it was, you know, Obviously, a little bit of a labor of love, but it was also, I think I learned that, you know, to sit there and say, I'm going to write a story and frame it out in your head, but then to actually sit down in front of a computer and start actually writing it, uh, it, it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of just focus and perseverance. And I kind of, you know, that was a learning for me, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. How would you introduce this book to someone who doesn't know you or maybe even know the material that you are covering in the novel? How would you go about it? Well, again, I would say that it's it's a you know, it's a it's a story. It's got a lot of subplots. So it's it's a story about, you know, redemption, family uh redemption and closure. And you know, I I was as I was thinking about it, and this is, it's, it's a little bit, if you were going to try and visualize what kind of a movie it would be like, it's like almost like On Golden Pond with a, uh, a dash of Saving Private Ryan. It's about, 
you know, family interactions and how, you know, petty jealousies and things like that can just fester and, and, and explode. In addition to, you know, this is an unexpected journey. This is a, you know, Worthy McGuire is an 89-year-old guy who, um, he's a successful businessman who just doesn't have a relationship with his family. And at that age, people would think you just kind of, you know, you haven't really dealt with it for years. You just kind of let it go. And, you know, so I'm telling people who are thinking about the book, it's, it's, it's a kind of a re revealing story that's really never too late to, to really kind of try and take a look at relationships and patch them up. You mentioned the word movie. If this was adapted into movie, what scene in this book would you say is the outstanding scene that they would introduce the movie as a, as a movie trailer? Hmm. I would say, without giving away the ending, which um, the the ending of the book is 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 pretty dramatic. It takes place on a on a D Day beach, and the the whole family is there. But that, I don't want to give away the ending. Um, I would say in the middle of the book, when you know Worthy is a twenty two year old or twenty one year old soldier, and you know he's he's fighting his way off off the beach of, of Normandy, of Omaha, and uh, just the, the courage it takes for those soldiers to not just hide behind a barricade, but to stand up and, you know, run into the enemy fire, I would say would probably be a, a pretty telling scene. That sounds like a remarkable story. Uh, this book, what makes it different from others in the marketplace, do you think? Uh, it doesn't have a vampire. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. um, Perhaps you could incorporate that in the sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worthy of the vampire. It actually, I think, what makes it unique is that you have such a um, the main character is an unusual character, you know, person in that he's he's this, you know, nearly ninety year old kind of crusty, gruff old guy who um, is really kind of driving the story. And I, and again, I think you know, as main, you know, as kind of heroes go, he is. I think un he is unusual in that he is in the autumn of his life, and uh, he actually kind of, in the book, comes around to kind of re-engaging with his family after 30 years of really not doing anything with them. Fabulous. As far as completing the book and developing a storyline, were there other challenging aspects of putting this book together? I think it was the, the main... There's a lot of subplots. There's, there's Worthy McGuire, who's the main character, and then there's his family, and he's, he's got his... You know, Worthy comes back from the war and becomes a very successful businessman in the Detroit, Michigan area. He actually ends up owning um, car dealerships, and that's kind of what the family business is. And so the challenge was I had to do some research around kind of what the car business is. I grew up in Detroit, so that was not that difficult. But just developing all of those relationships that Worthy had or doesn't have, but the, 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 the strings of his family, you know, his, his son who he's been fighting with for like 35 or 40 years. They don't even know why they're fighting anymore. They just do it. And then his two grandkids who are, they're, they're estranged. Worthy barely knows them, but they're the ones he taps to take on the trip with him. He needs help. When Worthy decides he's going to go back to France to, to try and find this family that saved his life, he realizes he can't go alone. And he realizes, too, that he has to turn to his family, and he doesn't have a relationship with any of them, but he turns to the grandkids, their adult grandkids, and he turns to them for help. So developing those storylines about how the grandson David is in the family business and just 
miserable there. And there's the granddaughter, Shannon, is also, uh, she's clerking in a bookstore and, and just, you know, under the oppressive pressure of her father and stepmother. And so all, developing all of those storylines and then kind of weaving them together was a, and, and in a kind of coherent way where you finish the book and you go, okay, all that stuff made sense. It, it's, there wasn't any, I don't think, any leaps of faith in terms of the storyline. Well, congratulations. Is there anything we haven't covered that you feel is important for people to know about this book? Um, I think it's, you know, it, it's just a, I, th I think it's a good story. It, it's an interesting story and it, it kind of reveals you have, each character has its complexities. I don't think that there's, there's a, there, there are characters that represent certain types of people, but nobody's is completely bad or completely, completely good. They're human beings. So if you're interested in a, a good story that, you know, kind of weaves in and out of the family intrigue that everybody deals with, and, but also, you know, this story takes you across the globe. It starts up in, uh, in a little village in Franklin, Michigan, and it, it takes you to where, you know, the uh, D-Day invasion took place. And, and, you know, along the way, they, they stop in England and, you know, go to the stormy coast of Wales to, you know, seek out letters that Worthy wrote during the war. So it's, it's I think it's got a, just an interesting story. Sounds like a fabulous tale. Are you planning any other books in the near future? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually I do. Um, working on one right now that is very different in terms of, it's a, it's a, it's a book actually about the, uh, um, the drug industry. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, in, in in a previous life, I was I spent uh, twenty five years working in the in the drug industry, pharmaceutical industry, I should say. Um, Thank you for clearing that up. That story is is about a, a kind of a successful pharmaceutical executive who deals with again. There's there's his personal life. He deals with some very intense situations, and then in his professional life, he deals with some very uh, kind of ethical faced with some very, you know, ethical questions. And it's how he deals with the, the theme of the story in his personal life is how well do you know your best friend? That story, when it comes out, we'll look forward to talking to you about it in the future. For the moment, we've been visiting with author Tim McGee to discuss his book, Worthy McGuire, a novel with a backdrop of World War II and beyond, dealing with reconciliation and family healing. Tim, thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jack. And how do we get a copy of your book? Uh, it's available actually through uh, through iUniverse, or it's available on um, Amazon as a uh, you know as a hardback or paperback, or um, as a, uh, a Kindle. And it should be available on Barnes and Noble as a, on the Nook very soon. Thank you, Tim. We look forward to talking with you in the future, and thank you again for sharing this intriguing tale and the backdrop to this wonderful story. For Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Parker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. 
She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Parker. Today we'll be visiting with author and doctor, Dr. Anselm Enyoha, to discuss the book, How Broccoli Head Lost 30 Pounds. Doctor, how in the world did you come up with a title like that? Well, um, when I first uh, started my efforts to lose some weight, uh, I've heard that uh, broccoli is a very uh, great food to eat, good vegetables. So I ate a lot of that, and uh, it happened. It happened that one one good night, my wife uh, uh, smelled broccoli on my head and called me a broccoli head. <laughs> so that's how. I, <laughs> so that's how I came up with the name broccoli head. That's a very catchy title. Yeah, but that taught me a lot of lessons because it taught me um, about uh, the aspect of food rotation. In other words. Um, uh, you don't have to eat one particular food item um, forever. You have to even in a even in a, uh, a group. Sorry, even in the um, area like uh, vegetables, you, you have to uh, find what kind of vegetable you like. You know, uh, mix it up. You don't have to stick on broccoli alone. You can mix it up with spinach and other kinds of vegetables. You don't have to, so that taught me a lot of lessons about uh, about uh, about broccoli and vegetables and other food items, too. And, Doctor, what field of expertise do you have? What is your background? Well, I'm a pediatrician. Uh, I train in general pediatrics. And did you deal with nutrition, at least in the aspects that you have approached in this book, in your study of pediatrics? No, we hardly, um, we hardly uh, talked about nutrition uh, as a medical student and as a residency. Uh, during residence, we never... Uh, Hardly discussed about nutrition. I had to do my own research when I decided to uh, lose some weight, and I had to do my own research. We never talked or dwelled so much on nutrition in medical school or during residence. So your goal was to lose just 30 pounds. Am I understanding that correctly? 30 pounds was all I needed to make my uh, BMI to come to normal. Uh, because I, when I first started, I weighed 183 pounds, which is which had my BMI in the um, which had my BMI very high outside the normal range. So to bring my B, BMI, which is basal metabolic index, to normal level, I had to lose 30 pounds. So that's what I did. You know, lose enough weight to make my BMI to be normal. And what did you discover on this journey? Well, I discovered that from weight loss, to lose weight is uh, um. It's somebody, somebody, it's something somebody has to resolve, have a good resolution about. You have to make up your mind and resolve that this is what you want to do, and you have to commit to it. And it's, it's a life-changing, life-changing style. In other words, you have to uh, do lifestyle changes. You know, um, if you want to lose weight and stick to it. You know, it's not uh, it's not something you do for a day or a couple of days after New Year. 
and uh, go back to your old ways. It's something you have to be resolved and committed to do, and something that you intend to keep for the rest of your life for it to work. Many people are involved in trying to lose weight and going on diets. What made this different for you? Uh, you have written a book about it. Was it just to discuss your journey, or was it to also pass on some well-learned lessons? Well, I think it's very... Uh, the, the reason why I decided to uh, go through the process of writing this book is because I think it's very, very important. As a physician myself, uh, I have gone to, I have gone for my annual physical to see my own doctor, who happened to be a very knowledgeable physician. And uh, he took my blood pressure, and my blood pressure was high. And he said, uh, Dr. Nyoha, um, your blood pressure is high. And he offered me a pill, you know, to take appeal for the rest of my life as a way to fix my blood pressure and I said um, thank you so much you know but I wouldn't I would like I'd rather lose I'd rather do it the uh, natural way I'd rather, rather lose weight you know to fix my blood pressure so that's what I did because I I realized the relationship between high blood pressure and obesity or excessive uh, weight so for every pound uh, weight loss there is a one millimeter millimeter of mercury drop in blood pressure. So I decided to uh, lose weight and um, I came back six months later and my blood pressure had gone had uh, gone back to normal. And that's how I fixed my blood pressure. And I think a lot of people, I think this is very important because a lot of people uh, take blood pressure pills for the rest of their life, for something they could do, for something they could rectify with a, a change in lifestyle which is what I did. What did you discover about food and the person's relationship to it when it comes to putting on weight? Well, I think um, it's very easy to see their relationship. Um, uh, food gives energy. As uh, we, People eat food just to uh, be able to get energy to do all the activities they have to do, as well as uh, run their vital organs, what we call basal metabolic rate. Basal metabolic rate, which is BMR, is heartbeat, respiration, does breathing, and a few things that happen in the body that we don't know about, you know. Uh, these are called basal metabolic rate, and we need energy for those things to occur. And that's why we eat, that's the primary reason why people eat food, so that their organs can function. Now, any additional food you eat, you have to uh, take care of it through activities. In other words, if you if you need 1,500 calories for vital for vital functions, you need uh, probably another uh, 500 calories for activities or 1,000 calories for activities, depending on what you do. But if you're going to sit around all day, you don't need that extra food for activities because you're not doing any activities. So any food you eat which is more than what your body needs for basal metabolic rate is stored in your body as fat and weight gain. So, so to maintain weight, to maintain, for somebody to maintain their weight, they have to match their activity level and basal metabolic rate with the amount of food they eat, with the amount of calories they consume. So the equation between now weight gain and calorie intake. Now, occasionally doctors such as yourself can get folks like me confused about medical terms and that type of thing. Does this book approach it on a scientific level, or is it also conversational? Well, this book is very easy to um, it's very very easy to um, to go through. In fact, I've seen people read this book in a in a day or half a day because I uh, you know I break it down into um, subsections, uh, categories, and uh, 
and tables, you know, it's very diagrammatic. There's a lot of diagrams there, and uh, it's easy to run through and pick the vital, vital um, component of the book. Now, could it also be considered a reference book? Yes, definitely. Um, there's a, you know, because I'm a physician, I had to, I had to put in, a, you know, a few vital things which a layman would find very interesting when now, you know, trying to discover things about food, body, and wood gain. Now, this is 122 pages. How long did it take you to write this book? Well, I wrote this book uh, in a period, I think it was between um, 8 to 12 months. You know, I usually come in early in the morning before my practice. I like to write in the in the even, in the morning, very early in the morning. So I come in around five o'clock in the morning, write for about um, four or five hours before my patients start coming around nine ten. So I just, I, I think I did that for about uh, eight to ten months. You know, before I could uh, get something going. And in introducing this book to someone that doesn't know you or know anything about this work, how would you introduce it? Well, I would tell them this, was, this is what they need to. I mean, they have to read this book because it's, um, it's very easy for people to just do the, uh, do the easy thing of you know, taking medications and thinking that this is all it is about uh, fixing their medical problems, especially hypertension, uh, diabetes, uh, sleep apnea, and also this book is a, a better book. So uh, if, if people do what they said in this book, they will avoid a lot of um, drastic measures to lose weight, including surgery, liposuction, with all its complications. This is a very, very, very important book for somebody who's interested in lifestyle changes to actually consider before they do anything drastic about their weight gain. And have you also taken on a lifestyle change since writing this book? Oh, definitely. My lifestyle—it is easier than people think, you know, about adopting a new lifestyle changes. Because, as I pointed out in this book, the the body always follows the mind. Whenever somebody makes up their mind, the body will follow. So the body is not as weak as people think it is. Whenever somebody makes up their mind on what to do. All the um, they'll think is they will discover that it's very it's easier than they think to follow through. So lifestyle changes is not very hard to do. We just have to you know start one one level at a time, make you know changes one change at a time, and your body will adapt to whichever lifestyle change you want to do. Uh, were there any challenging aspects of uh, putting this book together and writing it? Yes, there's a lot of challenges. I discovered that there's a bunch of things I don't know about food. A whole bunch of things I didn't know about food, especially variety varieties of food, the um, different classes of of, of food, and um, even uh, um, for example, in about nuts, you know, there's uh, thousands of varieties of nuts. Fruits, there's you know, thousands of varieties of fruits. Vegetables, there are thousands of varieties. I didn't even know about lentils, which is a very good, um, uh, good nutrition. I didn't know about lentils until I went to a food store and started looking up for grains and legumes, and I discovered lentils for the first time. You know, So there's a whole world of food that people don't know about, and it's very exciting. So I was uh, 
it was thrilling for me to discover things that I only read in textbook that I've never seen. These things exist, and I think people should get in tune with the, the world of, of food, the varieties of nature-made food out there. There are thousands and thousands, which is more than the, uh, the food industry can give. That's great advice. My wife, who has encountered some minor health issues, has been introducing me to some foods I didn't know existed and uh, finding that they're very, very tasty. They are great alternatives. Exactly. Exactly. Even now, even now there's no need for people to take um, to put uh, you know, a lot of salt in their food, for example, because um, what is salt? Salt is just sodium and chloride, for example, and um, a lot of vegetables have salt, a lot of, um, lot of grains, a lot of, uh, you know, natural food uh, consists of, you know, have salt in abundance, sodium in abundance. So there's no need for people to consume lots of salt, which, which increases their blood pressure. And the, the only thing why salt is important as a vehicle to add uh, the element of iodine. And iodine is a vital element which which the thyroid uses to produce um, a hormone, you know, thyroid hormone. That's the only reason why salt is important. But then a person needs only half a teaspoon of salt a day. That's the recommended uh, quantity of salt somebody needs in a day, half a teaspoon. And that is important only as a supply vehicle for iodine. So, but you can get a lot of uh, iodine too from seafood. So. You can get a lot of iodine from you know, eating a lot of seafoods, which is natural. So there's always a way to get around eating bad, you know, bad food. Nobody, people don't have any excuse to eat bad processed food because there's, there are a lot of natural alternatives. Well, sounds like important advice and certainly great research. Again, the book is titled How Broccoli Head Lost 30 Pounds. I am speaking with Dr. Broccolihead, as the name given to him by his wife, Dr. Anselm Anyoha. Dr. Anyoha, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for, the, for giving me the opportunity to talk about my food. And how can we get a copy of that book? Well, the book is uh, on Amazon, and also um, if you want to go to my website, which is uh, brand new, it's uh, but it's also available on Amazon. And how is Dr. Anyoha spelled? Anyoha is spelled A-N-Y-O-H-A. Just as it sounds. Excellent. Thank you for sharing this important insight on dieting and some good clues on how to keep our weight under control. Thank you so much for the opportunity. For Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.